Welcome back to AI Podcast in 26.1 minutes. I have with us today Don Chu and another Don, Don Miner. Welcome, Don. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Welcome, Don. <laughs> it's good to be here. So a little bit about your background. You were just about to tell us off off the radio. Yeah. Uh, what you, where, where are you coming from, Don? And I know you're now part of the organization I'm a part of, but where, how did you get here? Yeah, yeah. Happy to be uh, a, a collaborator now at, at, at Autos or you know, our companies. And um, so I, I currently live in Maryland and I have lived in Maryland my whole life. Um, I'm uh, pretend to be a data scientist still, but kind of definitely moved towards the business side over the past few years. And um, but leading up to this, I ran a um, machine learning AI consulting company called Miner and Kosh, and um, which did a lot of AI machine learning services for uh, Fortune 500s, uh, retail companies, construction companies, finance, pharma, healthcare, rail, a few different places. And um, before that, I was uh, I went in and out of the of the 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 government community um, doing different like big data implementations and data science stuff there, and uh, also did a stint at uh, EMC Greenplum doing a bunch of Hadoop stuff. Um, before that, I got my PhD from University of Maryland Baltimore County in uh, computer science. Did a bunch of machine learning stuff there. So it sounds like a long life passion for you to do computer science and data science. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey with some twists and a decent amount of luck thrown in, but yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so on, on that, um, you know, we, uh, w- when I graduated my PhD in 2010, um, which was computer science, machine learning, I, I, I was doing machine learning stuff because I just thought it was interesting and there wasn't really a job market for it then. And, um, so I went out and got a quote unquote real job, you know, and um, doing software engineering. And that's when I got thrown into Hadoop and um, primarily worked with that technology stack, you know, up until uh, for five, six years, day in and day out. Uh, I, I wrote a, a book from O'Reilly called MapReduce Design Patterns uh, during that time. And, you know, was very involved in the community there doing lots of large implementations with that. But I didn't really do very much like machine learning, you know, at that time with with the Hadoop stack. So. I spent this long time just kind of doing that work and really getting deep on that and just being really passionate about large data sets. And then the the industry kind of folded back in on my expertise and AI and machine learning and data science really started picking up and, uh, and big data and data science collided. So I was kind of lucky that, you know, this machine learning stuff I did in my PhD program that I hadn't used in five years became relevant again. And that was neat. And that's that's kind of what I've been focusing on the past four or five years has been the intersection of those two things. When the world caught up with you on data science and ML, was it just just pure delight, or was there some frustration trying to get people up to speed? I it, it was it was good for me. You know, I, I built my business on that luck, right? So um, I think it was. It was exciting to see the industry getting excited about things that I thought had been cool for a really long time, and uh, and you know, being in the spot of a consultant, I was able to uh, work with a lot of cool companies that were getting in on the ground floor, and that that's always been my sweet spot. My what I've enjoyed the most is is working with those types of people. Do you have any anecdotal uh, situations that you ran into in the early adoption of machine learning and AI? 
yeah in terms of like getting people to adopt it or just like disasters what kind of anecdotes I got, I got, oh, I got, yeah. I got, a, I got a big book of anecdotes. Either way, we'll do whatever you find appropriate. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think, I think early on, um, and, and this is still true, is that the adoption, uh, like most of the people that I'm talking to are doing their first AI machine learning project, and that's why they're talking to us as consultants. And um, there had to be a lot of change come internally from us and me as a consultant to get them to do that. Mostly because you know when they're doing a project for the first time, there's a lot of trust and anxiety. Uh, usually, we're ta- working with somebody that's a visionary at the company that wants to push these things, and they usually have one shot. You know, if their AI machine learning project goes south, then that's going to reflect poorly on them. So, um, I think what I found was that really seeing a good view of the market and um, uh, being able to determine how in what places I can actually be confident and tell customers like, yeah, you really should do this and, and, and work hard at this. Um, so I think early on in the conversation, you know, we had a lot of, I was talking to, um, so to give you an anecdote, I was talking to uh, a clothing company uh, pretty on in, in my kind of like independent consulting career. And they had a massive amount of opportunity and I was selling them on all the things that were possible and everything. And then it, the, the job died because our website was trash. Right. So they, they were like, "Hey, our accounting people looked at your website, and it's it's complete garbage," which I completely agreed with. And um, so, I mean, that's where where the project died on the vine was that you know we, we didn't um, uh, we didn't exude that confidence that that and I, I don't know if I had it, but now that I've gotten this experience and I've worked with lots of different companies that were at different stages, you know, we can go into those companies now and and really speak from a place of experience and say, "Hey, you know." So I, I stop that. you right there because it sounds like to me you're saying that the and this is a little bit reverse problem for some places is that the buzz around AI because you didn't ex- display it, you were losing business versus there's disruptors out there that we speak on our show all the time about being a little annoyed about the buzz and being <laughs> too much. Yeah. 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 I, I think the, I, I think it's a problem for both sides. You know, I think, I think the buzz is getting people excited and is getting people to want to invest in these things, but it's not strong enough to get, you know, people like accounting on board, right? Or traditional business managers, CEOs. So uh, I think I am frustrated by the buzz a little bit, but one thing that's nice as a consultant is that I can fight that buzz, right? Like I'm as an independent person, you know, not working for my company or not working for like a, you know, a, line of business and also to not working for a software vendor, I'm kind of able to take that impartial view and, and tell my client, like, look, that's just buzz. You need to ignore that. Um, you know, that product's not going to solve all your problems or, um, you know, reinforcement learning isn't going to solve all your problems uh, and, and kind of tell them like what realistically we've seen and give them actual examples of, of other projects we've worked on and, and paint that picture, a realistic picture for them. I, I think that's, that's, that's my job, right? Is like, Okay, so maybe I get a call because of Buzz, which so I'm going to let the Buzz keep happening, right? Because I keep getting sales calls because of it. But at the end of the day, like once I actually get with a customer and build some trust, it allows us to be really honest with them and and actually drive them to having a successful outcome rather than just satisfying some like buzzy itch. This is a question for both Dons, and maybe Don Shu Don Shu. Uh oh. Uh oh. What? I've never asked and rarely ask you questions, but is what is the appropriate balance of buzz about AI versus delivery of AI? Do you, do you think that the buzz is, 
inhibiting or enabling? Well, from a sales standpoint, um, it's always important to manage expectations because if there's such a huge misalignment from the person who's buying the service or AI in this case, and they're expecting um, in their imaginations um, something that's completely unrealistic, uh, that's, that's tough to surmount. I mean, it's almost better, I think, and sometimes to get a skeptical customer and then turn them around through education. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. Because I think I, I, I maybe it's maybe it comes down the style then, because like I feel like I've been pretty successful myself with the excited customer, right? And then kind of talking them off the excitement, but then redirecting them to something that's realistically valuable. Because I think that's that's where we've been successful is like looking at their holistic problems. Like maybe they get drawn in for some particular use case that they've that they've seen some buzz about. But then when we really explain it, there's still business value to be had. Like I I believe that AI can provide business value, and I think it's one of the most important technologies for driving net new business value at companies right now. And so like the excitement's there, but then you kind of have to like, you know, redirect it to something that actually provides value, and then. As long as we present something that's like, hey, look, this thing actually provides value and it's going to cost you this much to build it and it's going to you know, bring you this much return, they can't say no to that, um, even if it's not exactly what they were looking for up front. Um, so you showed this a passion for computer science early on, it sounds like. You got your PhD in it. You started a, uh, started a startup in the space, grew it to over 30 people, and you converted it into a very large organization as well and continue to strive you know, for success in that space, and I'm sure you'll gain it many times over. But what gets you up in the morning? What What do you wake up excited about in the morning now that you've made this such part of your practice? Yeah, I think I love seeing the variety of use cases that are coming out now. Like every day, I'm seeing you know people applying AI to new problems, or you know we have the opportunity to work on with AI new problems, whether they're topical, like working on, you know, we've worked on already uh, several use cases that involve uh, COVID-19 and that's exciting. Um, and you know, helping out retail companies and uh, manufacturing companies with this crisis is really interesting. But even if there isn't COVID-19, there's always this idea that there's this next new use case, like right around the corner. And I think at the core fundamental value, like my excitement isn't necessarily focused in data science or machine learning or AI. It's, and I think this translates over to the hoop stuff. I, I think I'm always excited about computers doing like just cool things, right? Like I, I want to take a step back and say, wow, it's really cool that we got a computer to be able to do that. And, um, and that, that, that's what gets me excited. And, and the, just the influx of, of use cases that we're seeing that can be solved by AI is really exciting. I mean, some of the sales conversations we're having right now are just, uh, I just never thought we'd be able to do some of the stuff that we're doing right now. And, and I just want to see what's next and I want to see if it actually works. Innovation and technology. Don can speak on that too. Don Chu can speak on that as well. He has some great ideas. Well, retail—that's really interesting. Um, particularly for me being in Seattle, I observed Nordstrom, which is a great brand in retail, though they've struggled a lot with tech. I mean, what have you seen in there, and maybe some success stories? Sure. Uh, we have a couple of pretty big retail customers. Is one of the industries that we've worked with probably the most over our, our career. And uh, 
it's a really, in, there's a lot of interesting problems in there. And I think where we're seeing a lot of, well, I have a couple of, of things that I'm really excited about in retail right now, but one of the big things is around hyper-personalization. So even if there's a lot of um, technologies out there and uh, actually, you know what? I, I think the big problem with retail was that they were actually pretty sophisticated from an analytics standpoint before AI came around. And I think actually in some industries that does them a disservice, like in finance, for example, is another case of this where, you know, you could go to a construction company and introduce some AI stuff and it's mind blowing. Right. But in a retail, their, their baseline analytics skill was pretty high and sophisticated. So, um, but the big thing that we're seeing right now is around hyper-personalization, like recommendation engines, targeted marketing campaigns, targeting couponing, and really narrowing in on like the individual consumer that they have and providing them what they want. Um, like one great example is um, uh, like we wrote some models that basically like looked at your previous, like, I mean, if you think about it, my, my style and my purchase habits for clothing, I'm not, it's, it's not one of my priorities. So basically I just buy the same thing. When my red polo gets a hole in it, I go buy another red polo, right? And um, we were very successful in figuring out what exactly people want to buy. So we were able to really narrow it in and say, you know, you should, here's a, an email that has a, a model wearing something that we should buy. And there, we maybe have 40 items we could show you, but we want to show you this one because it's the one that's going to get you in the store. Like that's something that's been really successful and something we're excited about. Um, Do you tie in the consumer with the prediction eventually, like human in the loop with any of this? Uh, for, for the marketing campaigns, um, you know, I think they're, they're moving towards more automated. You know, I think they're still scared about, um, about going full blown, you know, and they're very controlled environments where I think a lot of companies, retail companies right now are still in the testing phase of this, where you know, we generate like a list of, um, of emails that we want to send, right. And some human kind of scrolls through it and, and approves it. But I haven't seen anything right now personally that where they've just completely let the AI loose. Um, yeah, well, enough talk about work. Let's talk about <laughs> your personal view on AI. And I love to ask this question. I ask it almost every episode. Do you have any precautionary tale? Do you have any worries yeah. about AI? Do you have any ethical concerns? What yeah. is the downside of AI right now? I think I think my biggest concern right now is that uh, you have there's a lot of emphasis on the vendor space of AI, of building tools and out-of-the-box functionality that makes AI easier to do. And so, um, however, you know, that's the easy stuff in AI, right? So there's, you know, building models and machine learning. And I mean, that's like a 10-line scikit-learn script. Um, and making that part of your job easier, making it more accessible to people, I think is a little dangerous because you give this like illusion of power to individuals that, aren't fully trained on what it means to make a machine learning model, right? Like what, what are you actually doing? And so what I'm scared about is uh, people not taking into consideration, you know, building racist models or sexist models. Um, like a great example is that Amazon use case where they had the, the you know, their recruiting model turned out to be sexist or um, there's been examples of racist models in the past as well, where I think if you're just like, Hey, look, I got this data set in a CSV file. I didn't even look at the data and I plugged it into my tool and it spit out a model that has 98% accuracy. And I'm just going to go deploy this thing. I think is like a workflow that I'm pretty scared about. And um, uh, while these tools have been really helpful for my data scientists and making our jobs more efficient, it is scary to me that um, while people are necessarily ethical, you know, they're not out to be unethical. 
it allows for some accidental abuse is, is I think what I'm scared about. So when we start talking about governance and, um, uh, and bias and models and perpetuating bias. It, 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 it gives me some concern. What's your tactic for addressing that bias? Is that the composition of the team or is that making sure that the data that you're pulling in is widely representative? What, what are your key points on yeah, addressing that? It, there's 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 two ends of the spectrum there like and I think any good data scientist uh, is is considering this is one is what does the data look like coming into it what kind of exploratory data analysis are we doing on the data coming in and we're you know we're looking at the data and finding the statistical trends and so so kind of some anecdote you know I have both statistical minded PhD types and I have computer science minded PhD types and then I have the physicists who are just kind of crazy but the, the stats and the computer scientists people, the stats people really want to understand the data before they go into it, right? Um, and they do a lot of exploratory data analysis and really understand the trends. And then they just simply use the machine learning to, you know, as the capstone of their thoughts, right? The computer scientist works backwards. So the computer scientist will just like throw models at the problem and see which ones work best. But they'll perform like good testing on the back end, right? So they'll, they'll, they'll look at the model and determine, you know, the F1 score and like all the the, you know, the confusion matrix and really dive into why the model's performing the way it does. So I've seen this big contrast between the stats data scientists and the computer science. Like, do they handle the problem up front or do they handle the problem later? And what I found is that, you know, both of those have merits and it, you really should do both. So, um, you know, our traditional, you know, data science engagements and, and how I advise most people to do data science is that you can't just take data, plug it into a model and hope for the best. Even if it does provide you good accuracy, you really have to look at what does the data coming in, what is it telling us? And the model is simply the encoding of that understanding, right? Instead of just the discovery in itself. And then on the back end, you need to test the model, like which cases are going wrong? Like we had an example where uh, we did a computer vision use case that was, it was, I can't even, the, the data set was insane, but it was detecting nudity in images. And um, turned out our model didn't work on, uh, on people of color. So uh, it said all people of color were naked. And um, obviously it's not like we're damaging any lives, I think in this case, but, um, it was kind of embarrassing because, you know, people of color in our data set were only like 1%. So we were still getting like 98% accuracy and you we were like, yeah, great. 98% is great. Uh, but when we actually looked at te the testing and like, and saw the correlations between the ones we were getting wrong, it turned out they were all people of color. So, um, that's like the kind of thing that, that you can run into. And if we didn't do proper testing or the people that were doing the work didn't know how to do testing. Um, we, we, you know, we would have missed that. So, um, so that, that, that's my advice is like, go into the problem, do proper exploratory data analysis, understand your data. And then on the back end, make sure you're testing your models and understanding where it's getting things wrong, uh, and what its blind spots are and making sure that they're not like legally non-compliant or at all. I love the answer personally. And I, I think it's, you know, I, like I said, we've done 30 episodes by now, and I'll give you a ballpark high five on that answer. <laughs> because, uh, I mean, it absolutely resonates with me on, on the consulting level of, you know, these are the things that people need to watch out for when they're building ethical models. What is your, uh, to take it a step further, take it a step deeper, what is your thoughts on, you know, the privacy of data issues and how that interplays here yeah. is, you know, machine learning and things like that. Is it a, can it help you fight that, uh, yeah, concerns yeah. of 
or is it herded or what is, what is our, Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think, um, yeah, so I think, I think you can hurt and, and, and help. So, I, I mean, obviously there's this like whole, um, uh, Manhattan Project kind of issue here, right? Where we're a bunch of scientists working on building AIs and things like that that could be used for really like bad things or it can be used for good things. And, you know, we kind of struggle with that ethical dilemma. And I feel like I try to work on projects that are not <laughs> in, in the negative side. Um, but, you know, I think I think, um, I think think machine learning can really help. Like, like one issue we're running into right now is that uh, we're brainstorming some ideas around retail and using computer vision for this stuff. And, and there's a couple of other use cases where we're doing computer vision stuff off security camera footage. And a lot of these companies that are working with security cameras are really nervous about, um, you know, storing all that data for long periods of time because it has, you know, actual people in this video. And that's what we need though, to train models. Like we just want to see, you know, our customers engaged, like what parts of the store are they walking in, you know, how or who's picking up apples and then putting them back down. Like, like, like w whatever kind of activity you might want to see in a, in a scene uh, based on security footage. But there is this privacy concern if we're like storing all this data about individuals. There's even legal um, implications in some states and countries. And so, uh, you know, one thing we're talking about right now is actually using AI at the edge, um, meaning that very close to the collection before it comes into the cloud to use machine learning to obfuscate uh, faces, for example. So um, whether it's just blanking it out and mostly just blanking it out, honestly, in, in scenarios where we don't really care who it is. We just care that they're picking up an apple um, and would allow us to store that data in a private way uh, without ever impacting uh, you know, consumer privacy. So I think machine learning can really help with that. Um, I've also looked at some use cases of using machine learning to de-bias resumes, um, you know, pointing out things that would in, induce any sort of like gender bias in resumes or ethical bias. And so I think it can help, but I think it can also perpetuate some of these things as well. It's, it's interesting. So you're using fire to fight fire there, it sounds like. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know if that usually works right. Uh, but, but yeah, we'll, you know, we'll see. Brian's favorite question is the cautionary tale. Mine is who thinks predictively. And going back to the personas you described of the statisticians, the coders, and the wild physicists yeah. which of that group do you find generally thinks better or graphs predictive better yeah you know i think i don't know if there, anybody does it better like I, I feel like i get the best results when i get it, all three of those guys in a room right so you, you you get the i think i think though when i have so let's say i have a physicist data scientist the computer science data scientist and a stat walk into a bar they, they walk into yeah. a bar yeah I think I think what we usually see is that the I think the I find that the computer scientists maybe are the the creative ones that are like coming up with ideas are the possible kind of thing. The statisticians though keep us honest, right? So um, so you got the computer scientists coming up with ideas and like throwing things up at the wall. The statisticians like, look, that's not right, or you know, that's not going to work, or you know, that doesn't have statistical founding and truth, you know, things like that. And then meanwhile, the physicist is just kind of staying off to the side, and then the physicist will just say something out of the blue and it was like, wow, that's a genius idea. Like we have a lot of like some of our kind of craziest ideas of how to implement these things, like come from this kind of out of the box thinking that the physicists provide. And I'm saying physicists. I mean, I, I have a couple of physicists that work for me and, and, and uh, uh, that, that's like how that usually works, but it could be other disciplines, I guess, outside of the traditional ones, but, but yeah, so I, I guess it really is a team approach and um, 
I'm, I'm not sure. You know, it's it's uh, we, we've seen benefits of having a diverse team. So what is the um, ideal team composition out there? If you were to ask someone to build a pod here to solve the next new problem with AI and machine learning, what does that look like? Interesting. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be said about the size of this team. So, so let me just answer the, that question first. I don't think anybody's really been super successful in building very large data science teams. So I'm talking about like 40 plus people working on the same problem. Um, you know, I think even very large organizations that have 40 plus data scientists are breaking them up into different projects, right? Like you are working on this data science problem, you're working on this data science problem. And, and we know too, like software teams of that size too are challenging, but we haven't had to tackle that yet really as a, as a society. Um, but on, on the smaller scale side, you know, if you're tackling one problem, um, I, I, I like diverse viewpoints, there's so much creativity that goes into solving these problems where I, I just want the most diverse team possible in every way, right? I want, you know, people of different data science backgrounds. I want the PhD alongside of the person with the school of hard knocks. I want a senior person. I want a junior person. Um, you know, I want somebody from California. I want somebody from Maryland, like even West coast, East coast data scientists, like have different perspectives. Um, so I would just kind of say like first number one is diversity, but to get more specific, you know, like if I had like, if you gave me six FTEs that I could fill a team out, I think my dream team would be like a stats data scientist, a computer science data scientist, um, you know, like a data engineer type individual, a platform architect, which is really interesting because the platform architect, so this is somebody that's building out like the cloud platform or the databases and things like that. I mean, nobody's building AI and then putting, deploying like a model out of a Jupyter notebook, right? Like to like not enough people are building full end-to-end machine learning AI solutions and you need that platform person, you need the data engineer to get that to be done. And the third person, Finally, that's really important is this UI UX person. Not nearly enough people are like tying up the findings in like an actual UI UX that makes sense and conveys information to a human, right? Like no human is like looking at raw model output out of, out of a Jupyter notebook. And we've seen huge success in, um, you know, just throwing a really skilled UI developer on these projects. So, um, so yeah, I, I think I think my answer there is like diversity, but also to full scope. Like don't just focus on the AI stuff. You need to have platform people, the data engineering people, and the UI people all, all together. Okay, that's very helpful. Um, so I think we're reaching our our 26.1 minutes, which is the average commute time. Uh, is there any leave behind any way that you know, folks can contact you or anything you want to leave with our listeners? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, to contact me, I would look me up on LinkedIn, you know, Donald Miner. Um, it, that's probably my most active social media site. And uh, that'd be a good, good place to start. And, you know, with that, I just hope everybody keeps having fun with AI. I think it needs to be a fun, fun thing. I just got done teaching a AI class at my local university and there's a lot of excitement and kids that are having fun with it. I think it's the most fun thing you could be doing with computers right now. And I think if uh, we lose sight of that, then um, the, the industry will be a lot, a lot more boring. So, yeah. Oh, thank you, Don and Don. <laughs>